0: Hi there, this is Peter Bregman, and I'm excited to share with you for our special episode week a replay of a conversation that I had with Cal Newport. I figured I needed to hear this again, and maybe others would too, the ways in which we get distracted by the shallow work of emails and transactional minutia, and it draws us away from the deep work that really creates value in our world, And I wanted this reminder, I wanted you to have this reminder in this conversation, one of my favorite conversations, Cal talks about a couple of steps to remove distractions and make deep work possible. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, CEO of Bregman Partners. We help companies achieve ambitious goals by strengthening leadership throughout the organization. I created this podcast to share ideas that you can use to become a more powerful and courageous leader. Here with me today is Cal Newport. He wrote the book, Deep Work, Rules for Focused Success in a Distracted World. It's very resonant. Most of you know about 18 minutes. It's very resonant with much of what I write about in 18 minutes, so it's a delight to be able to have Cal with us today. Cal coined the term deep work in a series of articles published on his popular blog, Study Hacks, Decoding Patterns of Success. This is his fifth book and a book well worth reading. Cal, welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Sure. Hi, Peter. I'm happy to be here. So, what led you to write this book, and what's the main idea in the book?
1: Well, the book came out of a question in my own life. So, my day job is I'm a computer science professor. And soon after getting that job, I began to think in an introspective way about how do I do this well? What, what's going to help me do this well? I looked around. I was studying other people. I was doing introspection on my own habits. And it was from this sort of inward-looking examination that I came across the importance of deep work, which I defined to be when you focus without distraction on a cognitively demanding task. So pulling on that thread, it began to unravel a much broader tapestry. And it became clear and clear as I researched more into this topic that deep work is not just something that's valuable for people like me that have these odd jobs where we think for a living, but is actually becoming increasingly valuable for almost anyone in the knowledge economy, and once I had that aha, I said, "Okay, this is a topic that I probably need to share."
0: And I think it probably resonates with a lot of people. There's this issue that I know I face and a lot of people face, which is when we are busy but not productive. You know, we're busy all day, but we haven't gotten our most important work done. And and you spend half of the book, uh, the first half of the book, really kind of selling this idea of deep work. And it took me, you know, reading for about five minutes to go, okay, I'm sold. Like, I got it. Deep work is critically important. Uh, the challenge, of course, is is to actually do it. The challenge is execution, right? Because we could agree that, you know, it's really important to do deep work. And, and I, you know, I can do busy work for three days and then sit down with a piece of paper and a pen and for 10 minutes design a model and think, wow, if I only spent those three days doing this design work, I would be so much more productive. So the challenge is how do we actually bring ourselves to do it amidst all of the distractions? And the distractions are both actual external distractions like cell phones and email. And they're also internal distractions like the ability to sustain ourselves in deep work when it gets really hard and not go out and you know eat a pizza. So I'd love to talk about both of those topics. The first might be the distractions on the outside. How do we avoid the incessant sort of beeping and pulling at us from our electronic devices and from these other elements of, of modern life that seem to be pulling at us?
1: Well, I really see two steps towards accomplishing that goal. So really the first step is more philosophical. So this is why I I did spend quite a bit of time in the book really making the case for deep work is because I found that the key first step to embracing a deeper lifestyle is that you really have to embrace this notion that deep work is not about being a little bit more productive. It's not about the niceness of being a little bit less distracted. It is to quote the economist, the killer app of the knowledge economy that if you actually train your mind to concentrate intensely and really protect that activity within your schedule, you won't just become a little bit better at what you do, you'll become significantly better at what you do, and you won't just become a little bit happier with your work life, you'll find it significantly more satisfying. So step one, I think, is really trying to change your mindset and understand that there is a difference between deep work and shallow work, shallow work being everything that doesn't use your skills to their their fullest extent. Shallow work might keep you from getting fired, but deep work is what's gonna get you promoted. Deep work's what's gonna change the world. So then once you understand and really uh, embrace this idea that this is almost like a superpower, right? This is this is a massively productive thing if you can really focus like a, a professional. Then step two is the practical, the practical steps you can then put in the place to act on it. And I really divide those into two big categories. Um, one is the type of training you can do for your mind so that it's better at concentrating, it's more prepared to concentrate. And then the second big category of things you can do are the actual type of productivity style hacks, how you schedule your day, how you schedule your deep work to get the most out of what you've trained your mind to do.
0: So we sort of segment off this, this uh, period of time that should be maybe bigger than the shallow work period of time. The thing that I, I see people worried about all the time and I worry about sometimes too is this difference between creating work and marketing work and marketing work is shallow work, right? Marketing work is work which you do to, to, you know, get the word out and to, um, uh, you know, to, to um, connect more broadly with people outside of you and letting them know that your work is there. And I wonder what you think about that. I mean, can we let go of our emphasis on the marketing work? Can we do great work and, and the great work itself will go noticed. Are there, is there shallow work that needs to be done in order to spread that word?
1: Not nearly as much as we think. So I I really do believe that the very best marketing you can do for yourself is to produce work that is unambiguously valuable, unambiguously rare. And the only way to produce work that really catches people's attention is through the intensive application of intense deep work. And it's really for two reasons. One, when you're in a state of depth, that's the only state in which you're producing at the very limit of your ability. So if you're not spending a lot of time in deep concentration, you're producing work at a fraction of your capability. Two, and I think equally important, a state of deep work is what gets you better. So we know from the study of deliberate practice that if you're not straining your mind and pushing it, you don't improve. So if you're frequently doing deep work, you not only produce at a higher level, but your skill level, the overall value of what you're capable of, accelerates quite quickly. If you avoid deep work, you're gonna hit a plateau. So my thought is, sure there is some marketing that is required, there are some shallow tasks, but much less than we think. You can take me uh, as an example. I've never had a social media account. I don't have a general purpose public email address. I'm hard to reach. I don't web surf. I don't really do much marketing activities uh, at all in sort of the traditional sense. But I'm still able to write and sell books to large audiences. People find me. I'm able to to get good reviews. And so sort of my life is a case study of if you get rid of a lot of the time-consuming, shallow activities that people vaguely support with, well, it'll be more connected, it'll open up more opportunities, it's soft touches. If you get rid of a lot of those activities to prioritize your ability to go deep, the increased value you get from your concentration, I think, can swamp the small amount of opportunistic opportunities that you lost by getting rid of a lot of those more shallow activities. So if I remember, if I'm
0: reading, remembering what I read correctly, you had 2 million followers on your blog. Is that is that correct?
1: Uh. I don't know about that number. The, the actual numbers would be, uh, my like a hundred to two hundred thousand unique visitors a month, maybe like a half million visits per month, and then maybe another fifty to seventy-five thousand email RSS subscribers. Okay. So maybe not a two maybe million. Maybe not two million in,
0: in the ballpark. But part, healthy, yeah. right? Healthy. healthy. Yeah. Um, you to do that, you didn't do any social media. You do not have a social media account, so you didn't spread. You basically created a blog. You made it absurdly useful. You made it excellent. And you allowed people, you know, I imagine you probably sent it out to the first 10. And after that, they did the rest of the work.
1: Yep. Yeah, I've never had a social media account. Uh, There's no way as a reader that you can really contact me and expect a response. All I have publicly is a an opportunities email address that's one way so that you you can send into it. If there's an opportunity you think I might be interested in, like an interview, for example, um, you can send it into that address, but it's clear that I only respond to the ones that make sense. So I'm not reachable to my readers. Um, You can't get me on social media. You can't email me. It turns out it doesn't really matter. What people want is content that's incredibly valuable to their life, and that's a lot of hard work. Right. It's brilliant
0: um and i uh and i imagine restful for you to some degree i mean like you're you're you slice off a huge portion of what people spend their time on and you've sort of both decided and proved that it's not necessary
1: yeah it, and that's that's absolutely true because you know i noticed for example in the month surrounding my most recent book launch uh, as you know, when you have a book launch, it's sort of a short period that is inevitably and unavoidably frenetic because there's just a lot of things going on, a lot of but you have to you have to be on email a lot, there's sales ranks, there's interviews coming and going. And I noticed during that month surrounding my last book launch that the level of background anxiety in my life doubled. And it, it occurred to me that, There's probably a lot of people out there who, because their life is so built around this constant connectivity and moving and distraction, is that they don't even realize that you have this layer of anxiety that comes from the mismatch of that behavior and the way our brain is wired. That people don't even realize that you could be feeling a lot better if you put your brain back into the way that it's supposed to operate, which is free from this constant distraction and give it the ability to tackle one thing at a time and do it well.
0: Do you find that your brain needs some distraction, that that watching a movie on Netflix or, you know, an episode of The Walking Dead sort of settles you in a certain way that allows you to go into the deep work? Or do you find that that kind of screen time isn't productive either, that if you really need the break, go out for a walk?
1: Yeah, the latter. Screen time, for the most part, makes me anxious because just the whole way it's set up, that this is linked to this and this headline... The fact that most of the headlines, you can't go anywhere, even to the most staid bastions of journalistic excellence, you're still going to have these headlines somewhere that are uh, sponsored, and you have headlines that are generated by algorithms to do nothing but befuddle your brain and capture your attention. It makes me anxious, so I I go uh, specifically old school just to keep my brain in a deeper mode, so I get my news from an actual paper newspaper and the radio. I listen to the baseball on the radio in the summer to relax. Uh, I I just don't watch a lot of TV. I I don't watch a lot of streaming stuff. I read a lot. I spend a lot of time outside. I've been outside for about two hours already today working on a proof because I like the sunlight. I'm telling you, a deep life is very different than how most people approach their life, but it is incredibly satisfying and also it can be incredibly productive. And it's interesting because
0: people's fear of disconnecting in that way is to actually that they might be disconnected. But the reality is you probably have actual flesh and blood friends that you yes. spend time with.
1: Yeah. I, I tell people I've never had a Facebook account and yet somehow I still have friends. I still know what's going on in the world and I'm still able to sell books. So I guess, I guess everything we've been told isn't quite right. So let me t- take a turn here and talk
0: about the emotional challenge of deep work, right? Which is I find it twofold. One is, if you're really doing deep work, it's work that really matters. And that's scary to people because, you know, if I fail at work that really matters, then that's an identity issue versus, you know, shooting out a couple of Facebook posts, which who cares? And and so I think there's something that scares people about doing deep work. And then the other question that I have is you know there are times when it, my wife used to joke you know I love it when you have to write a proposal I hate writing proposals and she said I love it when you have to write a proposal because the house gets cleaned the, you know dinner is really beautifully cooked like there's all these other things that are happening before you sit down and write the proposal so there's the sort of emotional challenge of of s- sitting down and, and not only starting, but continuing, getting to a hard place and not getting up and distracting yourself. The pizza, the comment I made earlier. Can you talk about both of those challenges?
1: Well, something I think is useful to understand is that the ability to do deep work well is a skill and not a habit. And this is something that a lot of people get wrong and that has a consequence. So what I mean by that is that most people think that deep work, the ability to concentrate intensely on something, is a habit like flossing their teeth. Something they know how to do, it's just a matter of trying to find more time to do it more regularly. The reality is the ability to concentrate intensely is a skill, more like playing the guitar. Something that you would not expect to be good at until you've actually put in a lot of work to practice it. So first of all, understanding that distinction I think is important because what happens when people are somewhat new to deep work is that they try it. They say, let me put aside some time, let me turn things off, I want to try to just concentrate intensely. And it's difficult, and it's uncomfortable, and their mind wanders, and not much actually gets done. And they come away from the experience and think, deep work is too hard. It's not for me. I'm not a deep work person. But the reality is it's just that you haven't trained your ability to do that yet. Uh, You haven't put in the work to actually train your mind to be comfortable without distraction. You haven't put in the work to train your mind to actually focus intensely. So I find that distinction is useful because it tells people, yeah, it is going to be hard and not that successful at first. Don't let that be feedback that uh, leads you to quit the deep work path. You know, Think about this as something that you're going to have to train and that will get better over time and that you will get better at. So the more that you practice and support deep work, the easier it becomes to, to get a lot out of the deep work sessions and to your point to keep returning to the deep work again and again, even when you don't feel like it.
0: It's a really interesting distinction that it's a skill, not a habit, and it's something that you have to develop the capacity for that can you talk to us about that moment and and you've developed it obviously so it's this moment may not feel recent to you but that moment where you are working on something and and you're in deep work and you get to this really hard place or you feel like you have no ideas or you feel like you don't know where it's going and you have that urge right that moment of that urge to get up and go do something else or to check an email or to Like that urge, how do we handle that moment?
1: Yeah, that is a hard moment. I feel it all the time. I was struggling with it this morning. I spent the whole morning working on a a mathematics proof. That's what I mainly do in my day job. Uh, And I was feeling that moment. I didn't know what to do. I felt stuck. I wanted to do something else. But I'll tell you what helps you get through that moment is over time, if if you force yourself to put in, and like the way I advise, a certain amount of deep work again and again and again, whether you like to or not, you begin to get experience with the reality that deep work is something that uh, accretes in a non-linear way. And what I mean by that is when you're trying to tackle something that's hard, my experience has been you throw a lot of deep work at it, and it doesn't give you steady progress. In fact, you have these long equilibriums where you're just not making progress. You're trying different angles. You're trying to have the creative breakthrough. You're trying to find the new new structure to the book proposal. You're trying to find a way into the math proof. And you're just not making progress. And it's very, very frustrating. And then suddenly, like what happened later this morning, you find a way in. And all that deep work you've been doing up to this time has really been prepping your brain to have that breakthrough because it's been exhausting options that don't work. It's been increasing the cognitive toolkit you have for challenging a problem. And then suddenly you have this period of punctuated equilibrium, this nonlinear increase and, oh, I've made a lot more progress. And then you go equilibrium for a while, while, while. And as you throw more deep work at it, eventually you break through. Once you get used to that reality and you have a few experiences with it, that moment of resistance is not so hard because you recognize that there is value in those hours you spend thinking hard and not making publicly visible progress there is still an implicit under-the-surface progress being made that will have an above-surface impact eventually and all at once. And so that's what helps me get through that moment is that understanding that just like it's hard to to lift weights if you're an athlete, but you know if you do it over time, you're going to get the muscles, they're going to help you get through the game. It's the same thing with deep work. Even when it feels frustrating, it's actually using, you're making a lot more progress than you might imagine underneath the surface.
0: How do you distinguish that moment of productive but seemingly unproductive kind of movement, right? That, but it's, it's something's going on there. How do you distinguish that moment from the moment where you say, you know what, I actually need to go on that walk or I need to lie down for 15 minutes and take a nap and come back to this with a fresh mindset? How do you know
1: which direction to move? Give yourself fixed quanta of time that you work with. You say, okay, at least I'm going to go an hour. And then after that hour, I can say, am I really nowhere? Maybe I need to go take a walk. Maybe I need to to clear my head. Or or do I want to try another hour? So at least keep the quanta size of work that you're doing large enough that you're not having this discussion with yourself every five or ten minutes. And then otherwise, I I would just trust my instinct. I mean, all this is very hard. I, I don't think... We don't talk enough about a culture these days about the art of the life of the mind. It's it's very difficult to get a lot out of your mind. There's these subtleties. So, I mean, I'm glad you're asking about these issues because grappling with these type of issues is incredibly productive in terms of what you can get out of it versus instead sort of wading around the shallows and trying to find small things that you can do that maybe will 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 have some lucky break or this or that. So, it is complicated the life of the mind, but it's kind of a nice challenge.
0: When you're working in an organization, there's this need for alignment, for collaboration, for ensuring that we're kind of the work we're doing is connected with the work that other people are doing. And I, I've actually seen a lot of organizations struggle and fail for that lack of alignment. Any thoughts or advice about how to do deep work, which is sorely lacking in organizations? I've also seen organizations fail for lack of deep work, right? Because everybody's just running around connecting and aligning and nobody's actually doing the work. How do you how do you manage that balance? How do you do the deep work in an organization and still not end up in a silo?
1: Well, organizations have a lot of problems, <laughs> as you probably as you probably see in your own. You sort of speaking of consulting work. Organizations have a lot of problems right now because deep work is is not being prioritized, and I think it's actually having a major impact uh, on the economy as a whole. Um, Something I recommend, something I've seen be successful in the history of business as well as in, in, in sort of smaller case studies is structuring the communication, structuring the communication that's used for coordination, collaboration and alignment. To get away from the unstructured communication approach where you just say, I have an inbox associated with my name. Anything can go through there. We'll just figure out things on the fly. Just start talking to me through my inbox. That type of unstructured approach essentially destroys the capability for people to do deep work, which means these human brains that you've invested all of this money to bring on your major capital expenses organization are being used incredibly inefficiently. So I'm a big proponent of whatever this means for you or your organization, structure the communication. I mean, the way we sent a man to the moon without email is that the teams in the Apollo mission, the engineering teams, had these intense morning meetings where everyone would say basically here's what I'm working on today hey, Bob, I'm going to need this by, from you by this point. All those commitments were made, the plan was made, and then people went and worked for the rest of the day. And it turned out for something as complex as figuring out how to do space travel, that was enough coordination and alignment and communication. And I suspect that if we went back in time and gave all those engineers access to Gmail, that we probably wouldn't have got to the moon till the mid-1970s.
0: <laughs> it's a great example. How do you communicate with your publicist? How do you communicate with your publisher? How, you know the the people who are necessary to doing, and some of whom have to do the shallow work themselves, right? Which protects you from not having to do the shallow work. How do you connect with them?
1: Uh, with my private email addresses. So so I don't have a publicly available email address. But if I'm you know coordinating with my my editor with my publicist, then. Uh, they can contact me through a private through a private address, and I don't find that that's that much communication. But if I throw open the covers and say I want all readers to contact me through this address, that's when when you really uh, lose control. I mean, most writers aren't so lucky to have the problem of your publicist is bothering you too much because that probably means that your your book is blowing up. So I guess that would be a fair trade, right? And the um and the fear
0: of uh, you yeah, know, this might sound silly, but the fear of being forgotten, of having written a book and it's a good book and and it's out there, and then people don't talk about it anymore, and you know, you're you're not in the press. You that fear doesn't concern you. It doesn't. You know that if you're going to do the deep work, you'll come out with another book, and that that will have an impact. And and the work itself ends up being the the process. Like you said before, excellent work, useful work that ends up being the way in which you make an impact in the world?
1: Well, it's not that I'm free from marketing activity. So for example, uh, when my book came out, we, we submitted it to the standard places for reviews and we got nice coverage and nice places. And I think that's all fine. Um, I wrote a lot and continue to write a lot of articles that try to take these ideas, express them and, and, and pitch them and publish them in places where I think there's audiences who can hear about it. So I'm, I'm out there, I'm visible, but what I'm not is highly connected. So what I'm saying is not necessary is the me tweeting 100 times a day, or me having an active presence on Facebook, or me going out of my way to try to have interactions with 100 readers a day. Uh, these types of Sipsian communication tasks, I've taken off my plate to focus on the less communication-bound, more depth-bound tasks of, okay, this book is out there. Can I write a very smart article and give it to a really smart place? Okay, there'll be a little bit of communication about, here's the article, what do you think about the draft? Uh, but that's quite different than actually valuing the communication and connections themselves as being a key part of, of driving value and, and audience. It's a very
0: powerful distinction you make between visible and connected, and the idea that you could be visible without necessarily being you know, ever presently connected.
1: Well, to be a curmudgeon for a moment, which, which my wife tells me I do too much, uh, it's, it's uh, harsh economics, right? I mean, the, the market is harsh, it values things that are hard to do and are rare. And so when you think about activities like being on Twitter a lot or having big Facebook presence or answering a lot of emails, nothing about that requires a high level of hard-won skill. There's nothing about that activity that is rare and valuable in the marketplace. Anyone can go on Twitter and and send a lot of tweets. Writing a a nuanced, really good article, if you've been a writer for 20 years, that's actually producing something that's rare and valuable. So the way I, I often see these things is through this sort of harsh economic light. No one's ever made a fortune out of being really good at using Facebook. But there's certainly people who have made a fortune out of being really good at the very complex distributed system design that runs services like Facebook. You want to be on that latter side of the ledger. It's a great point. Cal Newport, the book is Deep Work: Rules for a Focused,
0: for Focused Success in a Distracted World. It's it's really an excellent book. This conversation shed even more light on it, which I really love. It's a pleasure to have you on the Bregman Leadership Podcast, and I appreciate you opening up your schedule, at least for this window, that we can have this conversation because it's super valuable to me and I know to the listeners. So thank you for
1: being on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Well, thank you, Peter. And and I admire your work. So it was you know, my pleasure to, to get this opportunity to speak with you. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening. Here's what I've learned from working with some of the most successful leaders of the most successful companies. Every leader, every team, and every organization has a leadership gap. If you want to become a leader who inspires your team to get things done, then you've got to start by raising the level of your leadership abilities. You can start by taking our free leadership gap assessment at www.bregmanpartners.com forward quiz. Then dive deeper with a copy of my latest book, Leading with Emotional Courage. For more ways to become a truly great leader, check out our online offerings, in-person workshops and events, and my articles at www.bregmanpartners.com. Again, thanks so much for joining me today, and thanks to Claire Marshall for producing this episode. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.